Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Jeffrey Cohen, president of Citizen Watch America. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from my home office in Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online, calling in from chilly, crowded New York. So it's been a while since we've had a guest on talking about the watch industry, and it feels fitting after a year where time seemed to have stood still for a while that we re-examine the watch business... Our guest today, we'd like to welcome Jeffrey Cohen, president of Citizen Watch America. He's been in that role for over a decade now, since 2010. And for those of you who don't know, he oversees actually five brands, not only Citizen, but also Bulova, Accutron, Alpina, and Frederic Constant. So a couple of names from American watch history, and then, of course, two Swiss brands and Citizen, the leader in Japanese watchmaking. So welcome, Jeffrey. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me, Victoria. It's really, it has been a while since we've had a nitty gritty watch conversation. So I'm excited about this. Watches have been a favorite beat of mine for, gosh, over 20 years now. So I take it you've been in it even longer. Tell us about how you got into watches. What's your background in this business? Well, I've, I've been working in the watch industry for now, it's almost 40 years. So, uh, you know, retail was really in my blood. My father was an entrepreneur, he owned retail stores. And I've been working in his store since I was eight years old. But one thing I was always doing was admiring people's watches as they were coming in. What kind of store did he own? He had uh, retail clothing stores. Uh, it was called Carson's, Carol and Sons. My mother was Carol and we were the three sons. So, But you didn't sell watches or he didn't sell watches? No, but we had a high-end clientele. So we had a lot of people coming in with some very nice watches. And I would always ask them how much these watches cost. And it was a little out of my price range. <laughs> So where'd you go from there? Did you immediately know you wanted to go into retail or was there something? I knew I didn't want to go into retail after working in the retail stores for so many years, but I wanted to work for a great brand. So in 1982, I became a regional sales rep at Movado and I was with Movado a long time, over 26 years, and then became Movado Van president worldwide before I left in 2009. So I kind of grew up in the business. And what drew you to Citizen? Well, they came after me very hard in 2010, looking to replace their current president and CEO of the company. And I looked around the marketplace and it was another fantastic opportunity for me and a great brand. And now we uh, we have the number one and number two position in the mid-price watch market in North America. So you joined in 2010, which was obviously a tumultuous time in all of business, but certainly the watch industry. Was was that a, a strange time to join a new brand? And how did citizens sort of fare during that financial crisis in the aftermath? They did well because people actually traded down into brands like Citizen at the time. So they actually won, you know, from brands like Movado and some of the higher end luxury brands. I looked at it as a restart. It was a great company. The idea, uh, you know, it just struck me. The idea of, of, you call it Citizen Watch, was it named that way to make it kind of a democratic type of watch as far as like something that every person could afford? Well, that's I'm glad you brought that up, Rod. Citizen, really, the name was started really to have a watch for all the people that everybody can enjoy, whatever lifestyle they're in or whatever they're doing. It was a watch for the people to enjoy. And it was something that was supposed to be extremely functional and something easy to use and very reliable. How old is Citizen as a brand? When was it founded? 
Citizen Brand is 103 years old at this time. So it has a very long pedigree and in innovation that it brought to the marketplace way ahead of other companies out there in today's industry. Actually, Bulliver as well has always been a history of first where we just, for instance, launched in Basel a couple of years ago, the first fully curved automatic movement never been done before in the world. You know, so we're innovators. You know, everything we do is from the ground up. We don't really take anything off the shelf. We do everything on our own. Everything's from the house of citizen. It's a Japanese company, correct? Yeah. Is working for a Japanese company, have you found it any different than working for an American company? Not really. Firstly, it's funny because people say, oh, you have Japanese watches, you have Swiss watches. You know, we look at things as brands and, you know, what are the best brands in the world? And today, the innovation and the precision that comes out of Japan, you know, is second to none. We actually launched the world's thinnest light powered watch ever in the world. Actually, the movement was like a one millimeter thick. It was so thin, we had to come up with innovation to make the case for it didn't crack. <laughs> so we had to go out and get materials that weren't even used in the watch industry. There's always something that's happening very differently. But you ask, what's the difference between a Japanese and American company? Um, there's a very different culture with the Japanese. And the difference here at Citizen Watch America, you know, I've been given a fair degree of autonomy over the years. My relationship with Citizen headquarters is very, very unique. And I don't think it's the norm for other Japanese watch companies or consumer brands, whether it's American, Swiss or French or whatnot. And I think that's our advantage versus other Japanese companies that the senior management really uh, runs the show. That's our unique selling proposition. Speaking of trends and on the ground, real time information, what have you learned about the watch business? What is your data telling you about preferences during a pandemic? With consumers staying home right now, they're without many options for discretionary spending and indulging and self-purchasing like watches. And this proved to be very, very strong and specifically for traditional analog timepieces in the mid-price luxury segment. And it was encouraging to see that consumers easily transitioned to online purchasing, even though it doesn't allow for the physical product try-on before purchasing, which is a very different type of experience for the consumer. But one of the things I took away was we need to invest as a company more in content and providing assets that we put on our websites or our customers' websites to make the consumer even more comfortable about making watch purchasing uh, decisions online. So creating more product imagery, creating more instructional or informational videos that answer questions about watches, because watches can be very technical at times. So as more and more people moved online, I also saw an importance to invest in online help and customer service tools to assist the consumer when there's no physical salesperson to guide them through the path to purchase. This was very, very important. And this was our number one initiative that we put in place during the pandemic. You know, with the offices being closed, I realized how important it was to have a strong state-of-the-art business-to-business website, a B2B website that does not close for COVID. <laughs> yeah, retailers can go online and order whatever they want. You know, they could do inventories. They can have their people in the stores do that for them. They could check the, anything that's being shipped to them they have on order. It gives them a digital access all the time because a lot of people are so busy during the day, they don't have time to pick up the phone. So we gave them an alternative where they could do it 24-7 and they can really take advantage. And of the retailers you, you have here in the States, are most equipped to sell online, would you say? Are they doing so quite comfortably or is that still something we're, we're working on? It's interesting. The jewelry and watch industry tends to be a more um, old-fashioned, I would say, industry. It's not really a, a digital-first type of industry, but this has really forced the issue. 
I think that, for instance, we signed up just during COVID almost 6,000 dealers around North America on our B2B site. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you guys do so much online because, as you know, some of the high-end watches don't sell online at all. From your vantage point, do you think that will ever change and should it change? Or do you think that's just right for them? And I think the watch industry is going through a real big transformation with many brands focused on going direct to the consumer. So watches are no different than any other consumer goods brands. So we need to respond to what the consumer wants, right? We're selling to the consumer. They have the purchasing power and they have the influence over what, what people are going to buy and they want to make choices. So on this topic of direct consumer, is there a path or, or what are your direct consumer ambitions, if any? We've become a, a digital first company and certainly uh, we use a terminology around Hill called citizen first. And that's the consumer, whether to be calling our after sale service area for repairs, calling our customer care area or going on to our digital flagship, we wanna make sure that we're giving them the best experience possible. So our online position with Citizen and Boulevard and all of our brands that are selling direct to the consumer is more about just being a digital flagship, giving them an opportunity to experience what we believe is the best experience for each of the brands. And it's, it could be the beginning or the end of the purchase funnel, but most times it's the beginning of the purchase funnel, they'll go on, they'll do their research, and typically, they'll, they'll transact with one of our authorized retailers. You have, I think it's five brands, correct? We have five that we talked about, but we have sub-brands like Caravel. We do Boulevard Jewelry. We have Alteo Di Monaco and Arnold & Son, which is very, very high-end. Is it hard since they all have different positions? They all have different marketing. How do you kind of keep track of all the different positions in your head? It seems like, you know, like a big family of different children with different personalities. Well, we have a lot of adults in the room that are really doing a, a good job in putting up guardrails and making sure that the DNA of each brand is really kept separate. There's separate marketing for each brand, the separate transacting being done. We actually have separate customer care people handling each of the brands and separate sales organizations. So at the end of the day, we're leveraging the back office where we're giving great service, great data information to the brands and things like that. Uh, all of that infrastructure is shared amongst all the brands, but everything is done separate, you know, in product development, marketing, anything that has to do with touching the consumer or the retailer is done through isolation through its own sales and marketing organizations. Right. And do you think most consumers know, because one thing I've noticed about at least people who go online and read sites like Houdinki and things like that is they're actually pretty savvy about the, the corporate stuff. Do you think people know they're connected and does that matter to people or is that something that's interesting to people? Or? The consumer really doesn't know, whether it be, you know, this group or a Swatch group in the Swiss industry. So we don't find that confusing at all. The watch connoisseur, the people that really study up on watch brands, you know, they'll have insight to that, that they know that Bulova is owned by the Citizen Watch Group in Japan, one of the largest watch groups in the world. You mentioned the, the two Swiss, not counting, I guess, the third, Atelier de Monaco, but Alpine and Frédéric Constant. Have the fundamentals of the past year been different for the Swiss brands? I mean, you talked about sort of mid-price segment doing well with Citizen what are you seeing in terms of how the Swiss are faring this crisis? Definitely Europe was shut down in March. You know, our Geneva factories had to close. So we did experience a pushback on product launches and deliveries. And this, I think, was not unique to us. This was unique to the whole industry. People put off, you know, introductions or they push back introductions, which I thought was probably kind of healthy in a certain respect, because I think there was a lot of product in the market already. So I think uh, spacing it out actually worked to our advantage. And 
also from a scarcity standpoint, it allowed the, the retailers to sell what they had and focused on newness later on. But uh, we saw that our sell-through was extremely strong in the independent retailer channel because consumers really have shown their support this year for shopping small. And the independent retailers did very, very well over the holiday. Yeah, it was very surprising, I think, to come to the end of last year and see how well so many independent jewelers had done. As we look ahead to 2021 and as this year unfolds, tell us about some of the marketing programs or initiatives you hope to put together. Let's start with Citizen. I mean, is there, what can we expect from the brand this year? You're going to see a lot of innovation and that's through product innovation and through marketing innovation. You know, we hope to, in the Citizen brand this year, really deploy a lot of our marketing initiatives uh, with our alliance with Disney, which has basically been on hold this year. And we have many, many agreements with them. This is not just making Disney watches. It has to do with activating in the parks. Matter of fact, when you see the clocks in every park around the world, every clock's a citizen. There's many different activation points that will hopefully be back in place very shortly by the second half of the year. And things like Comic-Con, which is huge because that's part of our alliance agreement with the citizen brand with Marvel. Also things like Run Disney Races, we're the official timekeeper there. And also the big thing this year is it's Disney World's 50th anniversary. So it should be a very big opportunity in the citizen brand. But you're going to see innovation in product and innovation of how we're going to be talking to the consumer. Because we know there's going to be a pent-up demand and people are going to want to go out and travel again and experience things like Disney World. And then Boulevard brand, you know, we have a lot of innovation coming as well. It's our 10th year anniversary for Precisionist. So we have Precisionist X coming out using much new materials. We have things with the Frank Sinatra collection that just came and actually sold out at some of our retailers and online. And then we have the Grammys. You know, I'm talking to you today from the Empire State Building, which is really an iconic building and very much plays into the bull of a hand. The only brand that's been in North America for over 145 years. Is that where you're located, the Empire State Building? or? Yeah, it's a cool space, but it's a very important place to be being associated with music. So the 2021 Grammys coming up, we're excited about that. So it's been a, definitely been a year of disruption, but 2021, we're coming out strong. And we're going to be, I, I believe, the, the best position in the marketplace to take more market share as some of these smaller brands are going to fall away. Why do you say that? Just because you need scale in the market or? You need scale. Everything's changed, Rob, you know, from traditional media points to digital and utilizing data to make every single decision. So it's very important that you have scale on a business where you can leverage everything in the back of the house, your back office to make sure you're getting the efficiencies out of the business. You mentioned not using data, and I, I wonder when you fully embrace that approach. I mean, how long has it been that you've been making decisions based on data, not off of some instinct or gut or anecdotal feedback from the market? I mean, data is everything, okay? We, we've been embracing data for years, but two years ago, we really became a digital-first company, and we needed to make every single decision using data, and that we weren't quite there till this year. And I think the pandemic really pushed us, so... Whether it be in product development, marketing, anything we're doing with digital, we're using data to make real decisions. We have data architects. We have people pulling numbers and and understanding what's behind them. And we're using that first before we make our decisions that are coming from our heart. So what kind of data? Obviously, sales data is something you use, but do you use data based on social media or data based on the web? Like, What kind of data have you really been focused on that's been particularly helpful? Number one is CRM. It's consumer data that we're getting and using that and in turn, turning it around and turning it into sales. But how do we get closer to the consumer? 
The consumer is driving everything, right? The consumer is, is in charge of the brand. At least you want them to think they are. <laughs> you want them to feel that they're in control. And that's what we try to do. We try to give them the information that they want through CRM to create additional sales for the company. And CRM is, can you kind of explain how that works in practice? When you're selling a watch online, we get, you know, they have a watch registration point or, you know, when people are sending their watches in for service or to register their watch, we have this information. And so we, we have a lot of surveys that we're doing and then we're able to have a dialogue with the consumer or answering any questions that they possibly might have. And then internally on our, our, our B2B or essentially in our call centers on our digital uh, flagship website, we're able to talk to them through chat and really engage in, an, in a conversation 24-7. I'm just wondering if, you know, especially over the last years, you've really implemented this citizen first, digital first perspective. Um, what has the data told you that, that has been surprising for you or might be a great takeaway for your retailers to know? There's a lot of things that caught us off guard, certainly in the last nine months. But the consumer is getting younger. And certainly with Disney, that gives us a big opportunity to cultivate a younger generation, actually multi-generations, because if you're going to Disney, you usually have uh, the parents, sometimes the grandparents and the kids, you know, so you're, you're working on all the generations at one time. It's very, very important. And also in the Bolivar brand, we're seeing tremendous growth in the Hispanic community. You know, everybody talks about the fastest growing uh, community in North America and things like that. But uh, the Latino community is something that we're going to be very focused on in Bolivar going into the future. Now, when you see Disney, is the classic Mickey Mouse watch still around or? Yeah, I mean, we have many, many different versions. Uh, Marvel, which was very big. You know, we're not just making Mickey Mouse watches. Ours are more theme based, different movies they have coming out and different type of theme parks that they're building. So as an alliance partner, we're able to tap into those resources working with the Disney Alliance team. These are very big population of people that follow all the Disney uh, franchises, certainly in Marvel, all age groups. You go to Comic-Con, we went uh, last year and you see all these adults that are there. And then on the weekends, you finally saw a few younger generation there joining them, it's funny. <laughs> You talked a lot about online and, you know, how you like to get registrations for your consumers. Is the gray market still an issue online? And how would you like to see the industry kind of deal with that? I think the gray market business is, is getting much smaller because now you have, you know, legitimate retailers online. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, companies like us, we have RFID. We spent a tremendous amount of money making sure that we know where all our products go and where they end up at the end of the day. And you need to track them. You need to have people in place that are doing this for you internally and externally and make sure you're monitoring all your markets on, on a regular basis. So, you know, it was a bigger problem you know, years back, but I think now is more people buying search and, and showing up on the, on the beginning of a search page for different brands that they can't keep. They don't have the scale to gray market their business. So. Switching gears a little, I, I wanted to ask you about what used to be Basel World and what used to be the, the show model that we grew up on in this industry. And obviously, 2020 was a big disruption. What are your thoughts on what role the fairs play in this industry and whether or not you'll return to them in 22 or uh, whenever they get back into business? The show model it was severely disrupted, right? And um, all trade fairs and every every business. So it's, it's, it's hard to predict when trade shows will be back in. You know, I mean, we have the JCK in June. You have other watch fairs in the Swiss industry later on. But there's, there's costs associated with these events, right? 
And I think that's something that everybody took a look at what things are costing and we really getting the, the ROI to justify the expense. You know, that being said, we're never satisfied. We need to have face-to-face -face meetings with our customers. I think the business was built on relationships and relationships are more important than a, a dimensional screen. It's too soon to tell now. I do think if we return to shows and when we do, they need definitely need to be shorter. I don't think uh, any of us think that they need to be a week long. How about smartwatches? Are you involved with that? Where do you see that going? It's interesting, Rob. You know, we've seen many significant changes in the watch industry, right, over the last few years. But over the over a longer period of time, we saw things going from pocket watches to wrist watches, right? And then from mechanical to brands like Citizen inventing quartz watches. And then our quartz going to mechanical. We've seen all these different things. In the last few years, we saw, you know, a new thing called smart. But you can sure we'll continue to see more changes in the nature of how the consumer is always looking for something new. You know, Citizen was the first watch brand to actually introduce a connected watch. And that was in Basel in 2012 called Proximity. Consumers want tools for their convenience and the smartwatch will bring them that. They're not willing to compromise on style, but CZ Smart, we believe, will be a traditional styled Citizen watch with a smartwatch technology. So we don't see ourselves ever competing with Apple. We're simply providing style design alternative that's quality. It's interesting you mentioned that people, you said they have dual watches, that people buy a smartwatch and a traditional watch. I think, Rob, the biggest thing that came out of the smartwatch craze in the last few years is it brought more attention to the wrist in general. It's really become an accessory point, a health technology point, and a luxury, you know, let me tell you something about myself point of view. One thing we just recently ran in JCK is that I haven't seen the whole series yet, but there's a Bulova featured on the Queen's Gambit, which I think it's like the number one show on Netflix right now. Yes. And that was exciting about it. Actually brought a lot of attention to chess and it actually brought a lot of attention to Bulova going back to vintage, which we have a lot of styles now in the core collections. Well, what's, you know, we've all heard the name Bulova watches, but when you talk to consumers, what sense do they have of what a Bulova watch is? Like, what does the name mean to them? Bulova is a brand different than and Citizen was more on technology. Bulova was based more on design. So it's really a stylistic type of brand with an American DNA. So when people think of Bulova, they think of, we use the term here, a history of firsts. There was a lot of places where Bulova brand played a, a role in people's lives, whether it be a Bulova watch going to the moon, whether it be a Bulova watch being built for the military, whether it be a Bulova watch that's being designed to support music in the Grammys. It's really, it plays into the emotions of a lot of people's lives in a lot of different ways. So Bulova has a very expansive DNA and fabric in, in this country. You know, Bulova also clearly had some technological firsts, right? It was at 59 with the Accutron tuning fork technology. Yeah, Accutron was, and we actually just relaunched Accutron. As its own brand. Yeah, we actually were very excited about it. The initial reaction has been very, very strong, probably the strongest it's been for any brand that we launched and during the pandemic when it was all done over Zoom meetings. Limited distribution, limited production, the first electric static movement new innovation in 2020, never been done before. It works off the motion of your body. The Accutron brand was very, very popular in the early 60s. So it's a whole different way of engaging a new watch consumer. Hmm. And what do you tend to wear yourself and what are you wearing right now? I'm wearing the brand new, I'm actually very excited, the Precisionist X, which is the 10th year anniversary. It's a limited edition. 
It's beautiful with a, a Croco strap with an 18 karat gold bezel insert, and it retails for $4,000. It's a limited edition series. I think we're actually sold out as of yesterday. There you go. You know, listen, I'm very excited to have the opportunity to talk to the authority and the industry. JCK is something that the company always supported over the years, and we're very excited to have such a nice relationship with you, Rob and Victoria. And we think that retail is going to be great in 2021. We think it's going to come back a very different way. And I think uh, we're well positioned as a group to take advantage of the market and really take our brands to the next level. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.